We are in the midst of a series that we're doing here, um, uh, looking at the life of David. We're just early on. This thing's going to go on forever. Um, and one thing I've been saying to you guys for the last few weeks that I'll probably keep saying is this. If, if my class is sufficiently amusing that you're willing to come and be like, and hear something interesting for 45 minutes, but it doesn't actually incentivize you to be all by yourself alone reading your Bible, jumping into this thing, then it's probably a net negative in your life, right? If all I'm doing is like kind of satiating some curiosity here, but not precipitating and motivating and equipping you to like, oh, I know how to do this and I want to do this, then I think it's a bad thing and you should probably stop coming. So, but rather than stopping coming, what I hope you might do is take all these things that we're, that we're learning and discussing and just go home and just build into your life, just like a pattern. I don't know, 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day? What do you got? Some of you maybe got an hour? That'll be a stretch. 15 minutes, let's settle at 15 minutes a day that you're going to read a chapter, two, three of your Bible, maybe right now in 1 Samuel, because that's where we are. But my goal is not just to look at the life of David, although he's, he's fascinating and there's so much here that we want to grab from him. He is the number one character in the Bible, except Jesus, who wins all games, right? More information about him, from him. Like, David's a massive player. If we understand David, that's going to be central to us. But more than just this particular guy, really what I'm hoping to do here over these months is teach you how do you read narrative. Like, there's a skill. It's like everything else. There's a skill set here. So I want to try to impart to you not just stuff about David, but how do we read narrative? And not only how do we read narrative, but how do we read narrative Christocentrically? I do believe that the Bible is written to reveal Jesus to point us away from ourselves as the, as the solution to all problems and toward him. And so we're using David kind of as a, a playground for that, to learn how do we read, learn about David, how do we learn to read the Old Testament, in particular the stories, but how do we read those stories in a way that will reveal who Jesus is? So that's the skill set. And as we're doing this, what I'd love you to just take it home and go, okay, great, I'm just going to go read my Bible all by myself and find there's all kinds of treasure in there. And today, we're going to look at probably the most famous event in David's life, which is, what would you say? David and Goliath. Does that feel like a safe bet? I mean, there are other things that he did that honestly are probably more important. But in terms of like the stories that have arisen out of the mist, David and Goliath is huge. Where, where is David and Goliath in the Bible? Do you know? It's early on in the David story. It is First Samuel. Do you know a chapter? Chapter, anybody know the chapter? 1 Samuel 17. All right, so go grab your Bible, go to 1 Samuel 17. And my plan, if the clock will cooperate, is we're going to get through the whole chapter. Um, because it's such, it, it is what's, what we would call, if you want to be fancy, this is a pericope. All right? Look like periscope. Lose the S and change the emphasis. Pericope is a, is a whole unit. So when you read narrative, you're looking for pericopes. You're looking for, this is the whole storyline of this thing. This is the chunk. And David and Goliath is a very tidy little unit here. And the setting, get, we get the setting in verses 1 to 3. So what we're going to do is I'm going to read you a chunk. We'll talk about it, ask a few questions. You look so dignified on those glasses, Doug. Just, just come join me. You, just, you look so prof- professorial right now. It's amazing, okay? So uh, here's the setting. 1 Samuel 17, the first three verses. We're going to set it up. Now, the Philistines, I'm going to butcher some name places. That's a rule. Whenever you read the Bible, Just don't sweat it, okay? Name places, we don't live here, we don't know, so just go with it. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at 
Sukkah, we'll call it that, in Judah. And they pitched a tent at Ephes Damimimimimim, between Sukkah and Azekah. And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley in between them. Okay? So there's a battle. Who are the two camps in the battle, you guys? Israelites and the Philistines, right? Okay, what do we know about the Philistines? They're bad. And that's about all we really need to know, right? We hate these guys. They are constantly a thorn. They, they are like the primary, like they are the neighboring enemy. They're, they're Canada, okay? They're like right up on us all the time, right? They're just right there. We don't like the Philistines. And there is this battle. As the setting is given to us, the camera stops. We're seeing all the troops of the Israelites. We're seeing all the troops of the Philistines. We're seeing they're in this valley. And then the camera zooms in on one guy, Right? Listen to the description of our one guy. It says a champion called Goliath was from Gath, and he came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. Literally, he was nine foot nine inches tall. Who's the tallest? I don't even know. Who's the tallest basketball player or something right now? Who's a a huge guy that we could think of? And how tall would he be? Seven feet. Seven foot. Okay, seven foot is massive. Nine foot nine. This is an... This is hard, right? This is a huge, huge guy, okay? Listen to the description. He had a bronze helmet on his head. This, we are living in, this is like in the bronze age here. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He wore a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels. Nobody knows what that means. What's a shekel? Do you have any idea? Do you have a footnote of how much, what that actually weighs? It's like 600 pounds. Yeah, about 125 pounds. His armor, okay? So he's walking around in like Kevlar, whatever, that weighs 125 pounds. The guy's a guy's a monster, okay? His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed, again, 600 shekels, which means nothing. What does that mean, 600 shekels? You got a footnote? What is it? 15 pounds. So the tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds, okay? So this is not like some javelin that you can chuck. It is like this giant wedge. He's walking around like a mace, and his shield bearer went ahead of him, Okay? Now, this description of his armor is the longest you're going to find in the Bible. Why does the camera stop here and give us such kind of detail about him? What, what, what are we trying to accomplish here? Yeah. Oh, it gives us a uh, good description of why uh, the Israelis was terrified of. Yeah. It's supposed to, f- how does it, it's supposed, to, it's supposed to feel the sense of ominousness to it, right? That you see this guy, there's all these people, you know, war is scary all the time. But there's this particular guy that's just very ominous and terrible. I was thinking about this, bear with me here because this, this could fail. But do you guys remember, who are you watched the, the Bionic Man, the $6 million man? Okay, you guys saw this, all right? All right, so just stay with me, give me a little bit of room here. Do you guys remember this most ridiculous, ominous nemesis that he had? Do you remember, it wasn't a person... Do you remember that, that space that was like a Venus Land Rover thing? It was this tank with this arm that came out. Do you remember this? They always had this like ominous music. No, nothing at all. This is feeling even worse than I, my worst fears. Like, <laughs> you got Jamie Summers in your mind? You got any of this? Do you remember any of this show? There was this ridiculous like tank. And I think it was supposed to be like, like a like a lunar module or something, but somehow it got released on the earth and he had to go fight it. And you can't fight it because the whole thing is just this steel tank that roams around, okay? So if you can imagine there was ever such a thing, that's Goliath, right? When you see the guy, you're like, we're dead. 
we're dead. What, what are you going to He's nine foot nine. His, his, his armor weighs 125 pounds. There's no hope, okay? But it's also contrasting with something. Do you know? What are we contrasting? We look at, we're looking at the appearance of this man. He's humongous. He's terrifying. Do you remember narrative? We're learning how to read narrative. There's a clue in the text that should tell us what's something, part of what's going on here. What are we contrasting this to in the previous chapter, from chapter 16? There's a pregnant line there we want to get. And we got seats up front. Come on up. We're glad you're here. You can join me on stage if you want. Um, do you remember that? You know what the contrast point is? Yeah, there you go, Bob. Listen to this. This is 16.7. This, this is all part of the narrative clue. Here it says 16.7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his what? His height. For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Saul was this huge, super tall guy. He was a head, head taller than everybody else. And God's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Height, schmite. And then he goes and he gets David. And then in the next scene, we got somebody and we're all just overawed by his height. And we're meant to remember like, oh, yeah, 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 that's right. Height grabs our attention. It seizes our mind. It might even terrify us. And he's like, yeah, so what about that? Okay, what the height, height, height. Okay, that's what's going on. And we're, we're learning to read that God is saying the fact that he is so tall in this narrative is bad news for him. It looks like good news for him. But it's not, because God isn't impressed by the tall guys. Get it? That's, what, that's the setup that he's laying. Herrick, you're pretty tall. You should not be nodding so, so eagerly to that. <laughs> okay? He is a great soldier, and we're not supposed to be worried about that kind of thing. And he makes a proposal. What is his proposal about how the war should play out in 8 to 11? One-on-one challenge. One -on -one challenge okay? So this is interesting, right? So you're going to have a war, and he says, here's the deal. We're gonna do, instead of everybody dying on this battlefield, right, and we're probably going to kill you anyway, you just send one guy forward. We send one guy forward, me, and then we bet. And, and if you guys beat me, if your guy beats me, then we'll surrender to you. But if I beat your guy, then you surrender to us. It's an all-or-nothing deal, and that's the terms of battle, okay? How do the Israelites feel about this, this opportunity here? It's terrible. Why is it terrible? Because, yeah, this, he's tall. He's huge. His armor's massive, and there's no way they're going to win, and so they don't want to play, right? Now, pause here. Gonna, again, we're learning how to read this stuff. Do you, can you think of a story that Jesus tells that invokes this moment? We're in a battle. There's a proposal and the proposal is that if you can beat this guy, then you win it all. But if you don't beat him, you're going to lose it all. And we're all terrified. We don't know what to do. What story does Jesus tell that invokes this moment? What were you saying, Charlie? Temptation. Uh, okay, so that, that's not what I'm thinking of. Tell me, unpack that, though. Well, I'm just saying if you throw yourself off a bit, you can have it all. Oh, yeah. You do see that. So, like, Matthew 4, the, 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 in the temptation... Jesus is making, or Jesus is receiving an offer of a kind of a, an all or nothing win. Yes, that's true. There's a story, however, that Jesus tells that invokes this moment. And by the way, that story that Jesus tells is almost always misunderstood. Nobody knows what it's about. But it's about this. What, what is the thing? Anne, are you thinking of it? Were you mouthing? 
Okay, no. Okay, sell all you own. Can you give it to me? Okay, that invokes that same idea. It's a battle motif. Can you think of his battle, his war parable? Do you know it? Jesus told a story about a war. It's in Luke 14. Take a look. Do you love to read Tim's mind game? It is my favorite game. Luke 14, listen to this, okay? Because this is, this is part of what's, this informs what's going on back in, with Goliath. Luke 14, 31 is where the story starts. It's actually a, a paired story. He tells a story about a, somebody that's trying to build a tower. And he tells a story about somebody in a war. Listen to this, 1431. He says, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Okay, do you hear, do you hear the similarity? Okay, a king is going to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? That's the setup, right? So the Israelites, they're doing the math. And they're thinking, I'm in a battle. This is my opponent. Can I possibly win this war? And what, what are they concluding back, back in Israel? What are they concluding? It's a bridge too far. It's a bridge too far. This guy's going to crush our heads. We don't want to do it, okay? That fun, that's a, there's wisdom in that, right? It's not foolish to decide, I can't. I can't bridge that gulf, right? Jesus taps into that and he says, listen, listen, if, a, if you were a king and you had 10,000 troops and there was an opposing king and he's marching toward you with 20,000 troops, wouldn't, while he's still a long way off, like before it's too late, would you not do the math, right? And then what Jesus says, still in 1432 now, he says, and if he's not able to defeat that, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off, long way off, and will ask for terms of peace. Okay, why does Je- we're going to come back to David in a second? But I'm just trying to show you how to read narrative. Why does what is Jesus' point? What does that story mean? Who's who? What's the point of this parable? How does this play out? If you have an army twice as powerful as you marching against you. And you cannot win. Would you not send a delegation and ask for terms of peace? What is, he, what is Jesus saying there? Jesus, the okay. That, that's the delegation that faced the army in the war. Okay, that's, you're, you're, jumping, you're skipping one step ahead, Anne, but you're exactly right. Okay, so I'm going to repeat you after we get one step first, and then we'll, we'll jump into you. Yeah, go ahead. Roll out. Realizing that we can't pay the price. That's right. That's exactly. So, so if, we, if, we are, if we are in the weaker position and we recognize, I cannot win this battle. I am not greater than God. I am not more righteous than he. I cannot do the things that he, that he does. Well, then I'm going to be like, um, before you show up and win and conquer, is there another option? Could I just surrender before the battle begins? Is there some delegation? Is there someone that could come and that would satiate your wrath? so that I don't have to face it. Is there a way that we could accomplish this? And and there is a way. In fact, the, the wrath of God can be satisfied, that this army that comes against us can be appeased. Now, if I go there, if I am my own delegation, it's not gonna go very well. 
But if one would step in on my behalf and go to him and plead my case before him, and even if it comes to it, drink his wrath on my behalf, then perhaps there will be terms of peace. Right? That's what that story is about. So with that echoing in the back of your mind, right, or maybe in the front of your mind, that there's this idea within the scriptures that when one greater than you comes opposed to you, the urgent thing is to find a way for peace. And if someone has offered to purchase that peace on your behalf, man, it would be a foolish thing to look askance at that and to think that you'll do it on your own, right? With all of that in your mind, David and Goliath, okay? So here we are. Here's our scene. Once again, let's see, where do we want to pick it up? Mm. Go to around, so we'll hear, hear, hear it in Goliath's words, verse 8. So Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why don't you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are not you, the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. And if he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, then you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And their response is an appropriate response. Verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. That's proper. There were 20,000 troops coming after you. Just sit still. You're not going to win this one. Right? Problem is, it goes on for days. How long does this last? How long does he keep coming out and talking smack against them? 40 days. 40 days. That's six weeks. That's a long time. What's today? That's like, that'll get us past Christmas, right? Every day. He taunts and he threats and he ridicules. And every day they're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't even know what we're going to do. So maybe never mind. And then the narrator stops the story. We're in the battle. The dramatic tension is building. It's been going on and on and on. And then the camera stops and we pick up another place. What happens here in verse 12? What is? Take a look at it. What happens in verse 12? Sir, real loud. I just literally can't hear anybody. David comes into the story. David enters the story. Okay, now we're going to get re Now, David, we met David. Remember David? What, where did we meet? When did we see David last? Yeah, Samuel had anointed him, and he he kind of comes onto the scene, and then we forget about him, and now we're back here in this battlefield. And the narrator's like, remember David? Let me tell you about him. And we get a little more information. David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse from Bethlehem and Judah. He had eight kids. Saul's time he was old. Jesse's three oldest sons went to war. The firstborn was this one. David was the youngest, and David's running back and forth. He's taking care of the sheep. Okay, so it's just... It's a little bit of an odd thing. This, the dramatic point of the story, and then now we find ourselves in a sheep pasture. This is how he's bringing him back into the narrative. And something, you guys know the end of the story, but something is changing, right? And we learn that his dad sends him on an errand. Okay, now, details in a story are often really important. And there's a funny little detail here. Look at verse 15. The narrator is making specific decisions to include or not include, exclude, disinclude, exclude details. What is he? He says something in verse 15 that seems very innocuous, very benign, not relevant to a battle. But what does he do in verse 15? It says, David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Okay, so that's good. That's all going on. And then down in verse 20, 
It says this, early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. There's, that's meaningful, but it might not be obvious why. Why does the narrator make it a point to include the fact that David, who was tending the sheep, doesn't merely leave the sheep, but he finds a substitute? That he has somebody that's going to care for the sheep while he goes off to deliver the cheese. Why does he include, there's, there's an, again, there's a, there's a narrative purpose for that. Herrick? It reminds me of when Jesus is talking to Peter. He's like, do you love me? Good. Feed my sheep, you know, take care of my sheep. Okay. That's an excellent observation. And there's going to be a little bit more to it, but that is the foundation of it, right? So what is the implication then about David? That David is doing what Jesus did when Jesus left and went to the Father. Yes, okay. He's doing what Jesus did, and somebody said it over here. Say it loud. He's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd, Catherine. Okay? That's the purpose of this, of this little detail, is that David, we're about to see that David is a great warrior in a really surprising, unusual way, but before he's a great warrior, he's a great shepherd. Okay? Now, this also has a contrast. Do you remember your Saul? What is he contrasting here? This is, this could, you may think that I'm, you know, like splitting hairs here, but, but I'm not. This is true. I'm not making this up. Um, What's the contrast point? Where does, where does Saul, where, where is Saul, the foil to this? Do you remember his story, Saul and animals? Go back with me. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter, chapter 9. Saul was sent on an errand. This is before Saul became king. This is as Saul became king. In 1 Samuel 9, a bunch of donkeys got lost. Any remember that? I don't know if this is going to, this may not have made the, the flannel stories of, of your childhood, but but 1 Samuel 9, 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, through the area around all these places that I can't pronounce. Passed through this place, he couldn't find him, couldn't find him. And in verse 5, 1 Samuel 9, 5, when they reached the district of Zuf, Saul said to the servant who was with him, come on, let's go back. My father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. And he gives up. And he leaves the donkeys to fend for themselves. Okay? Not the end of the world. There's a reason that somebody might do that. But Saul is entrusted with some animals and he leaves them, neglects, neglects them. David is entrusted with some animals. And when he's called on a mission, he makes sure there's somebody else to get them. This is all on purpose. Okay? David is a good shepherd. And we're building the case. We're, making, we're, we're building the story for who is this person. One of his attributes is he's not that tall. Well, that's good news in the kingdom of God. Another of his attributes is he's a good shepherd. He takes care of the things that are entrusted to him, even when he's called away on an important mission. Okay? Which will be very much like Jesus, but not yet. We're going to get there. Okay? So far so good? We continue to read. There's this contrast. So, Saul wants somebody to take up the challenge, right? So Goliath is talking smack. Saul likes the idea of let's do the one-on-one. -on -one. He just doesn't want to be the one, right? Which I get, and nobody wants to be the one. And so on and on we go. It takes six weeks. And after 40 days, if nobody's stepped up, nobody's stepping up, right? It's not like on day, like, you know, 42 that you're going to be like, all right, all right, all right I'll do it. It's never going to go. 
And you need to, we, we have a tendency to read the story of David and Goliath from the perspective of David. We've talked about this. We, we like heroes. We watch everything through the eyes of the protagonist. But you've got to watch this story through the eyes of the Israelites. They are the ones that correspond to us. They are the ones that are facing an enemy that is marching against them. Not because, the, in their case, the enemy is bad. In, in the story that Jesus tells, it's because we are bad. But nevertheless, there is this opposition. Okay? They're afraid. There's nothing they can do. And then finally, in a very shocking and a surprising way, somebody shows up. Look at verse 22. David's there. Why is David there again? He's here with a basket of food, delivering cheese to his brothers, okay? And he hears what's going on. Now, let me ask you, if you're the Israelite, based on what we've seen here, and Goliath is talking on the smack, what, what is your emotional response to that? Fear. Fear. And why, what are you afraid of? <laughs> We're going to be ruined. We're going to be killed. We're going to lose the battle, Right? That's very normal, right? And you're allowed to be afraid of scary things. And that's what they are. But I want you to watch David's emotional response. David shows up with a bucket of food. And there's a bunch of scared men. And David has an emotional response as well. But it is not fear. Okay, what is it? Watch this. So, verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. And he ran to the battle lines. And he greeted his brothers. And he was talking with them. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out of his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. But what is David's? Do you want to predict it? We haven't read it yet. What's David's emotional response going to be? Anger. He's offended. What else? Indignation. indignation, absolutely. And why? On whose behalf is he offended? What is he indignant about? Who is this to defy the armies of the living God? He's ticked because the honor and glory of God is being trod upon. He is not afraid. He is not selfish. He's not like, oh, what about my needs? He's like, who, who is this guy? And why are you letting him talk? about our glorious God in such a disrespectful way. This is absurd. What are you people doing? Do you see there's an absolute absence of self-interest in this? He's not concerned about like what's going to happen to him. He's like, well, why are you putting up with this? He's absolute. every other man, everybody there is thinking like, oh, this is going to hurt. And David's thinking, it already hurts. You are, you are allowing the honor of God to be smeared. And I don't like it when that happens. Okay, watch him. He says it. Did you want to say something, Steve? Yeah, I just, and you mentioned it. He said, who, who is this guy who is defying the army of God? It's like, do you all know who you are? Yeah, that's exactly right. He's incredulous, right? He's indignant. In verse 26, when David, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills a Philistine and removes this, what's his word? Disgrace. Reproach, disgrace from Israel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Gets pretty personal. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? <laughs> David's response is like, he's like shocked. What are you pansies doing? Are you kidding me? What is happening? God is worthy of honor. 
His name is to be lifted up and exalted. He is to be the one that we treasure. And you're all here all being what? Right? I don't, it doesn't even, the physical threat doesn't even register for him, right? And David is totally different. This, by the way, what is the, what is the chief commendation given to David? Not in this story, but throughout his, throughout, what is, the, what is his kind of epitaph? Is that the word? Man after God's own Right. He is a man after God's own heart. Have you ever wondered what does that phrase mean? He is a man after God's own heart. David is going to do a lot of really stupid things. Okay? Lots of really, really stupid stuff. But he has one overarching virtue. And it is that he is, quote, a man after God's own heart. That is, that is this special sparkle about this guy. What does it mean? He always respected God. You know, like, he didn't kill Saul. He, didn't, you know, he always said God is supreme. He always respects God. He's going to trust the Lord. He's not going to kill Saul. The supremacy of God in all things is ever before him, like genuinely is. Again, he's got, his, he's got lust. He's got anger. He's got all kinds of stuff that's going to wreck his life. But that is present for him, right? And that's what you're seeing right here. Everybody else walks into the situation, and they think about themselves, and they're afraid. David walks into the situation, and he thinks, this is bad for God. Okay. And then in the midst of that, while well, he's indignant about that, this completely unnecessary additional grief is about to fall upon him. Without looking, do you know what? So he's got this threat, this massive huge guy coming at him. What is the insult to injury threat that he's about to face? Do you remember? His brother's like, huh. his, right. He's his older brother, right? His older brother is now going to start insulting him. Watch it. It's, it's just completely gratuitous here. Verse 28. When Eliab, is that how you say that? David's oldest brother heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger at him and said, why have you come down here? And, and with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? Implication is you didn't leave them with anybody, but in fact he did, so shut up about that. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is, and you came down only to watch the battle. Wow. <laughs> so what's going on in, in his brother's mind right now? Yeah, he just doesn't like his little brother, and he's afraid his brother. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he, I don't know if he can foresee what's going to happen, but he just thinks his brother's just being an annoying little brother, and so he insults him. What is it, Suzanne? I think he's, he's probably feeling a lot of that conceit and stuff throughout his lifetime because he's the oldest. Yes. And so he's projecting all of that onto David, who's you know for five minutes. Exactly right. Yeah, and we see this phenomenon of like I accuse you of the very thing that I'm doing is probably what's exactly happening. Michael. It almost reminded me of uh, how Joseph was treated by his brother. Yes, yes. And we see oftentimes, in fact, maybe, maybe every time there's a family in the Bible, things go badly. Have you noticed this? The very first family, like literally, can you Adam and Eve, their very first sons, one of them murders the other one, right? So be of good cheer. You're probably not doing as bad of a job as you think you are, right? I mean, it never goes well for anybody, so like just be at peace, you know, it's just part of the deal, okay? God makes a perfect world, puts Adam and Eve in it, and they sin. That, that com sincerely comforts me in my parenting, you know, like, <laughs> sovereign God in a perfect world, and things go all to crap, like, okay, standards are low, right? <laughs> so, Judy? Well, that's what I'm also, you know, I'm sure 
when someone points something out, they knew they were afraid. They knew that they weren't depending on God. And so right. it's kind of like just they know that. So you react in anger when somebody points out something to you that you really know. Absolutely. Yes, David's very presence, David's comments condemn his brother, who is one of the scaredy cats, who is, who, isn't he, he's not even, it's not even that he's not afraid, uh, how do I say this, he, the, David's brother is not merely afraid like everybody else, but he is also not even, he forgot the honor of God at all, and now David, this puny, it was constantly showing, you know, and so, and so he's mad. Okay, now, so that's all what happens, but what does David do? When his brother starts talking smack, what this is, can you imagine if your children did this? What does David do? What's that? What does say? That's right. That's right. And he ignores him. He just takes it. Holy moly. Are you kidding me? I, I'll tell you who I left the sheep with, right? Are you kidding me? Dad told me to come out here. Are you kidding me? He doesn't do he doesn't defend himself. He just takes it. What now have I done? Ho ho ho, easy. He turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the man answered him as before. That's, before we start throwing slings and stuff, David's already killing it, right? He's already killing it. In fact, let's just pause. What are, what are the remarkable things that we're beginning to see in this particular, he got anointed, and now we're, now we're beginning this revelation to his nature and character. What, let's make a list. David's attributes as revealed so far in the story. He's mature. What's that? This is a maturity. How does that maturity manifest? He's slow to being reckless. Yes, slow to anger, right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. He has this humility about him that we see in the interaction with his brother. Very good. What else is true of him? Responsibility. Uh, okay, too many things. Hey, over here, what was it? He's responsible, right? And responsible for what? Sandals, Yeah. <clears throat> He's a good shepherd. Right? He takes care of the things that he's been entrusted with. He cares for them. He finds substitutes. There's a responsibility there. He's a good shepherd. Over here. He protects them. He's, a, like, he's showing his leadership. And, and, he, and God has already taught him, no matter how big that bear is, no matter how big a lion That's right. He would ever think a little kid could wrestle a lion. Yes. But God, he's been trained, so... Yes, and we're going to see that. that, that that's the next paragraph we're going to look at is the whole bear line thing. We'll, we'll take a look at that. What's his first concern? God, honor. The honor of the Lord. All right? David is a, he's a stud. All right, there's a lot happening here. Suzanne? He's obedient. Like he's, he's, he's been directed by his father to... Amen. his brothers. That's right. So we got this nobody from nowhere, not impressive in his appearance... He is a good shepherd. He's obedient. He does the things that he's told to do. His first concern is to honor God. And when his brothers hate him without reason, he takes it. He doesn't rebuff it. He doesn't counterattack. He just drinks it and does not defend himself. He's selfless. Right? He is selfless. He's concerned for the needs of others, to love God, to love his neighbor. Okay, let's keep going. We're just building a list. Now, verse 34, David says to Saul, well, listen, your servant, that's me, has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or bear came, carried off the sheep, I went after it. I struck and I rescued the sheep out of its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, pause right there. 
you could look at this and all that we've read so far and say, well, David's got the skill set. David can kill lions. David can kill bears. And therefore, David can kill big, huge guys, right? And if that's all that we had, what would David's reliance, upon what would David's reliance be? Right. I mean, I, I kill lions, so take it. You know, let's go, right? But there's one more thing he says. He doesn't simply say, I know how to kill lions. I know how to kill bears. I know how to kill this guy. His next sentence there in verse 37 is, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. David is a man after God's own heart. He sees, he believes, he recognizes that his success comes from the Yahweh. Do you? How quick are you to think I am such a good stock picker? Do you know why my 401k is better than your 401k? It's because I'm, I mean, we don't make a big deal out of it, but it's because I'm smarter than you are. Uh. Right? Do you know why my children are more obedient than your children? Do you know why my business is more, do you know what, right? This is universal inclination. Whenever, we, whenever something goes well, we're like, you know what I've noticed is the common thread in all the things in my life that go well? It's me. You know this, right? David is like, man, I killed a lion. I killed a bear. The Lord enabled me to kill a lion and a bear. He delivered me from these things. And he has just a different orientation, right? This is Deuteronomy. Listen to this real, real quick. Deuteronomy 8. This is one of my favorite passages about money. Probably my favorite passage about money. The most important text, I think, in the scriptures. Deuteronomy 8 on the topic of money. Let's listen to this. Ah, clock. Deuteronomy 8.10. Listen. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God. When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Be careful, 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 careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, his decrees that I'm giving you. Otherwise, here's what's going to happen. This has happened 10 million times. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, when your herds and flocks are grown large and your silver and gold increase and all that you have is multiplied, then what happens? Your heart will become proud. The common element, it's inescapable. It's me. Your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of the hard rock and he gave you manna to eat in the desert, something your fathers had never known to humble you and test you so that in the end it might go well with you. You may say to yourself, you might, you might. My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. It is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. He is the lion killer. He's the one that rescued you from the paw of the bear. And so it confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. This is why David's a man after God's own heart. He walks into the situation and he sees like God's honor is being besmirched, not okay. He thinks about confronting the situation. He's like, well, I don't know. God saved me here. God saved me there. Let's roll the dice. He might save me here too. He certainly can. And if he cares about his honor, maybe he will. So let's go. Right? He's, diff he's different from everybody on the field. He's got all these attributes. 
And then this, the most famous line. He approaches this guy in a weakness. I think this might be the most distinctive thing. Listen to this. Here's verse 40. This is what you know about the story of David and Goliath. Verse 40. Shoot. He took a staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the steer. steer what do you call that? Stream. And he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. This is the thing. We know this about David, right? He approaches in weakness. It's the little guy versus the big guy. We see all this. Now, According to David, we should all know what's about to happen. This is a weird thing. David thinks he knows the end of this story. Anybody watching is going to be like biting their fingernails. Like, I don't know how this thing is going to go. But David knows exactly how it's going to go. Listen to what he says here. This is, this is I think this shames the Israelites, and I think it, I think it shames us. Look at what he says in verse 47. All those gathered here know something. Do they? I don't know if they do. All those gathered here know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Did the Israelites they've been sitting there for six weeks know that the battle belongs to the Lord did those that for 40 days have been drinking taunts know that God does not save through strength and power did they know it I don't think they knew it he says they will and if they did they didn't believe it <laughs> they certainly didn't but faith is his, is his I mean David's armor is his faith Yes. Oh, here, take my arm. Yeah. Uh, this is, it, Saul's got this, you know, all this. It goes into great description of all his armor, how much it weighed. I think there's even some connection with bronze and serpent that gets into Hebrew. But, yeah. But, but that's Goliath. And he says, I don't need his armor. And how, and how did David know? Why, why did da David thought they knew it? They didn't. I don't think they knew. David thought they knew, and he certainly thought they ought to know. How did David know? that God wins battles through weakness and not through power. History. History. Unpack that, Judy. Well, the whole history of the Israelites was God going, I mean, blowing trumpets and walls fall down. I mean, those are not might. Exactly. Or anything else in this strict Ex Judy's bullseye exactly right. He's saying, listen, we're followers of Yahweh. We know how this works. He's a freak show. He always does weird stuff. We were going against Jericho. I was like, all right, march on the wall seven times, blow a trumpet. And they're like, uh, I don't, I cannot imagine that could possibly work, right? Gideon facing the Midianites. All right, get a bunch of jars, break the jars, everybody scream, and it'll, it'll work itself out from there, right? Like over and over and over and over. Every time, God loves to win from the bottom. He loves to conquer all by losing. He likes weird offbeat weakness. He triumphs over the Pharaoh of Egypt with a bunch of slaves. David's like, have you guys been watching? Have you read about this? No sweat. We're weaker than he is. How can this possibly not go well for us? <laughs> right? That's what he's saying. It's like, y'all know, we know, we know who we serve. We know how it works. 
Gideon won. They all won. So we got somebody who is a nobody from nowhere. He's not outwardly impressive. He is a good shepherd. His first concern is the honor of God. His brothers hate him without reason, and he just drinks it. He doesn't defend himself. He always credits God with his success, and he believes the way to win is through weakness and not through power. Do you understand what people thought this might have meant? They're looking for a Messiah. In Genesis 49, turn back here. In Genesis 49, there was a promise. Listen to this. Genesis 49, 10, a promise was made that the scepter will not depart from Judah, meaning the, the king, the, sti- the stick of the king, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. They are waiting for the Judean king to come, for the one who can do it. And when David shows up, they're like, this, this could be it. This could be the guy. All right? And it's going to seem like that for several more chapters. It's going to fall apart. There was a promise that a king was coming. And First Samuel, you guys, is about the search for the king. We're waiting for the Messiah to come. The one that will do all these things. The one that will rule from weakness. The one that will be righteous and kind. The one that will be a good shepherd. That won't leave us, neglect us, and move on to better things. And right now, at 1 Samuel 17, it looks really good. The guy may have come. You guys know he's going to break our heart. But not to worry because the Messiah would still come. And the reason we're studying the life of David is because he is both the template of the Messiah that would come and he is the foil against which the Messiah comes. David sets the stage, but he can't fulfill his own promise. That will be left to somebody else. And as we continue to watch David's life, what we're going to be seeing over these next number of weeks is pictures, hints, what Lewis calls hints, of uh, echoes of a song we've yet to hear. Scents of a flower we've yet to find. The real, the true and greater David will come. But first, we're going to see what he's going to look like. And we're, we're watching for his attributes. Okay? Make sense? Okay, Catherine? What stands out to me so much in this is that, and has always, is that David stands out because he's a, he's a, he knows that God is a God of remembrance. And God reminds me that, too, when I am in trials. He says, remember, remember what I've done for you. And, you know, we just forget that because the trial is so blinding, you know. It's true. But remember, God wants us to remember what he's done. He's not an egomaniac. That's right. That's right. And David is a great rememberer. It's like, everybody here knows this because it's clear to him. They don't know, but it's clear to him that God has done this in the past. He killed lions, bears, pharaohs. No problem. All right. So keep reading. Watch through it. Learn to read narrative. Learn to see, look for the clues of the Messiah, and we'll just unpack it together as we go. All right. All we got.